Hello and welcome to the first in a series of very special Rock Sound podcasts. I'm Will Cross, June editor at the magazine, the host of our normal weekly Friday podcast. And we're so, so stoked to be able to finally reveal the debut Rock Sound Awards powered by emp.co.uk. So before we do anything else, head to awards.rocksound.tv right now to check out and buy our very special Rock Sound Awards bundles featuring 10 individual special limited edition covers of all 10 of our Rock Sound Awards winners. Also featuring exclusive interviews and photos, exclusive posters from their Rock Sound Awards cover shoots, a 2018 calendar featuring even more of your favourite bands, a Rock Sound Awards sticker, the top 50 releases of 2017 and so so much more awards.rocksound.tv limited edition once they're gone they're gone get involved we could not be more excited about this so a little bit of background about what we're doing. We wanted to honour the bands that we feel have defined 2017 in a special way. So we decided on 10 awards that span the entire rock sound world, from newcomers to icons to Hall of Fame, and built an entire issue around that to celebrate the year in music. It's been months in the making. We've been teasing it across our socials on the weekly Friday podcast. Man, we could not be more stoked to finally be able to reveal this. But now... We want to give you guys as much kind of cool stuff as possible, make this as interactive and special as it can possibly be. So we're going to be releasing a full feature length uncut chat with each of our Rock Sound Awards winners. They're completely exclusive and some of the things in these chats you're not going to hear anywhere else. So no spoilers, we're not going to tell you which order they're going to go out in, but we're going to kick off with a particularly special band and award. It's our Hall of Fame winners. It's Fallout Boy. Man, when we talk about special bands, Fallout Boy are at the absolute top of that. They've influenced thousands of bands, had this amazing career, reinvented themselves, millions of fans across the globe. It's absolutely insane. So there couldn't have been a more perfect recipient of our debut Hall of Fame award. And this is a bumper podcast as well because we caught up with both Pete and Patrick from the band to talk about the band's entire career, right from the early days of Takes to Your Grave right through to the modern day with Mania. Absolutely amazing. We're going to run them back to back. You'll hear my voice in the middle of them for about two seconds and then you'll get Patrick. So yeah, this is absolutely exclusive stuff. There are stories in here that I could not believe they were telling me you won't get this anywhere else. So here we go. Kicking off our Rock Sound Awards podcast powered by emp.co.uk. This is Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy, our debut Hall of Fame Rock Sound Award winners. Here we go. So how does it feel to have won the Rock Sound Hall of Fame Award? Oh, man, that's pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. You to ever even hear our name mentioned near the words Hall of Fame is pretty insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to kind of um, chat about the band's career a bit, really, and just kind of how you've kind of got to this point. Um, so we'll take it back to the very beginning. Um, you're one of the most influential bands in music. Um, you've inspired a whole generation of bands now. Um, could you ever fathom something like that happening when you went into the studio to record Takes to Your Grave? Oh, for sure not. You know, we didn't... We had, like, no money... Uh, we didn't know, like, we didn't even know enough. We hadn't, didn't even have enough songs written to put out a whole album. You know, we were writing when we were there. Uh, no, it was not, you know, looking back, looking in reverse, it's always easier to kind of like reverse engineer something, you know, but like, it's not, there was nothing, 
there was not such a, you know, like special, I don't know, you know, like it wasn't like you couldn't tell the runway was taking off to where it was going at all. Because, well, you had something very unique from the start as well. I mean, obviously, you know, Patrick had his uh, Motown-inspired melodies, for example, and you were kind of bringing that hardcore vibe into the band. There was so much going on from the four of you to make this very unique sound. Um, was it important that you started from the ground up with something unique, or did it just kind of happen? Um, it just kind of happened. Everything with Fall Out Boy, honestly, just kind of happened. You know, like it was... <clears throat> there wasn't anything uh, really that premeditated you know like it was never that thought through so no it was it was always built from the you know like it was it was meant to yeah i mean it just kind of like fell into place because it was supposed to or something you know like it was never really thought out and the things that didn't there are also a lot of times that when things didn't work the way we'd expected them to work you know and that and and those things just fell to the side kind of you know Obviously, there was a huge success from Take It to Your Grave, but was it? I, I, I guess that took a lot of hard work, and you had to kind of push through a lot of things as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that honestly, you know, when you're just like a a 20 year old or 22 year old dude or whatever, like dude, you just are you're still like working yourself out, kind of, you know. And we didn't have like you know stylists or people who were telling us you know, to mentally prepare for this or that, you know? And so, yeah, so much of it was like, um, you know, trial by fire, you know, and, and that's okay. It's like all growing periods. You know, I don't think we, you know, individually end up where we are or as a band end up where we are without going through some of that stuff, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's also like, there's like a, a huge mental fatigue to like, you know, traveling out of a suitcase in a van, you know, playing shows that, you know, there, sometimes there was people at, sometimes there weren't people at, you know, like, so it's just like mental, mental and spiritual fatigue to do that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, for sure. And with, uh, from under the court tree after that, obviously it's become one of the most influential albums of the past 10 years of this century, really like going into that, uh, was there any pressure or was it just kind of, was it literally just, you know, you took those experiences and then poured them into the next album? Like how, what was the vibe in the camp like before you went to the studio? Right. So like if take this to your grave was like this album that nobody watched us while we were making, you know, like nobody cared because we just weren't on anybody's radar. We weren't on anyone's radar. It's special. We didn't have a budget. You know, like there was like a, a deal through Fuel by Ramen. Like there was just like this setup deal they had, like where we could upstream the island. But it wasn't because someone was like, oh, this band is going to, like we weren't the next band. You know what I mean? Like we were the, we were not that, you know? So like, then take this to your grave kind of like, exploded but like exploded in the underground only like it was not on the radio it was not uh particularly commercially viable outside of like kids coming to the shows you know and singing along so like but all of a sudden there was like <clears throat> you know when we were at this major label like people there was you know like we were people were like oh my god this could be a thing like how do we like <clears throat> make this into something that fits into the you know like the the the, like a peg in the in the like major label system, you know, and we were so anti that, but not in a way where we were like purposely anti that. It was just like we just didn't write that way, and we didn't 
think that way and the song titles were turned and the merch wasn't and the live show wasn't and you know like there were so many times when people were like you got to change your live show when we were you know making from the court tree people were like you know like just it, like more trying to be like more more involved and we just don't really function like that so we just made the album that we made and i mean god bless like i mean honestly god bless that like there were music videos and MTV was the same because like, that's really what, I mean, like what happened was basically we weren't being played on the radio when from under the court tree came out, our fans, uh, bought the record, just our fan base did. And then we made the video for sugar. We're going down and people requested the video. And there was like a vacuum for like boy bands on TRL. So like we became one, you know what I mean? By like, by accident, you know what I mean? And, and that forced radio to play the song, you know, like, cause it wouldn't have happened. I, I can't picture it happening any other way. You know what I mean? Cause it was like, sugar we're going down was like a tough sell at radio. And so like, nobody even took it there, you know? So like by virtue of making some weird videos and making some weird art stuff, like it got played on the radio. Wow. So it, it was very kind of DIY then in the way it was done in that it was very fan backed and it was kind of it became this success because of the power of the songs and how much people in terms of your fan base believed in you then. I think, of in, you know, not even like it's whatever. I think it would be like a little bit goofy for me to even think that it was because of the song. It was like because of the fan base it was like really loud kids. And he, you like imagine like this was the first era where kids were, like, able to listen to music peer-to-peer, like, in their dorm rooms or in their parents' computer. And, like, we were one of the first bands that was, like, that's how we were shared. You know what I mean? So, like, we were big, but, like, nobody had heard of us. You know what I mean? So it was, like, this really weird... It's, like, akin to, like, Lil Uzi or Lil Pump today. You know, like, everyone under a certain age knew us, and everyone over a certain age had no idea who we were. So it was, like, this, like, impending wave. You know, amazing. So, song like "Sugar We're Going Down." I mean, like, did you? So, did it not even did, when you were making that in the studio? Did it not even feel like you had this hit song in your hands? Then you just it, you were just laying down all the songs, and then it just happened so naturally. Like, did it? How did it feel when you put that song to tape? Well, first of all, the original chorus was not was not there. Like Patrick played it, like he was just playing stuff, and I was like, "Well, what about that thing?" And he's like, I don't, "What thing?" And I was like, the thing you played before. And he was like, this thing. And I was like, no, no, no. The thing you played before that thing. And he was like, I don't have any idea. And that was the chorus for Sugar We're Going Down. We had to like dig it up from his like the the garbage dump that he had in his brain. You know what I mean? Like, cause he kind of, it was a throwaway. Um, and at this point, like we hadn't really like figured out how we like wrote in the studio. So me and Patrick like fought a lot. You know what I mean? Like we like a lot of, a lot of that record was like a product of friction, you know? Um, and no, it wasn't like, I don't know that there's ever been a like, oh my God, that's a hit song with, from Fall Out Boy, you know, whatever uh, moment. But like, we didn't, we definitely did not with, you know, Sugar. I definitely thought that Sugar We're Going Down should be a single before Dance Dance was, but I think I was in the minority. Like most people were thinking, and I think Dance Dance was, was bound to be the more successful kind of single, but like, I just felt like Sugar was like something that was so different from what was out in the mainstream at the time that it like made sense. I don't know. 
Yeah, definitely. No, I totally agree. And I mean, when that song blew up and when the album blew up, you were on Warp Tour and I've heard some amazing stories of, you know, fans surrounding the bus and tapping on the windows and shouting for your names and everything. Like, take us inside that a bit. Was it a, a really, really insane period for the band? Yeah, I mean, it was insane because, like, we just, I don't know. There's no way to, like, quantify what that experience was like. You know, like, like when you have, you know, a mob of people outside everything you do in every moment it, it, it was cool to experience that in like uh like it's like i think about it all the time when i you know think about the guys in whatever one direction or whatever like i'm like i couldn't do that for longer than the period that it existed for us because it was just it's too intense you know what i mean it's like you go to brush your teeth and there's people like screaming you know like it's just uh and especially when you don't have a like we didn't plan on that you know so like there was no, like management that was like this is what it's going to be like and this is, you'll have these bodyguards you know like it was just like one day you woke up and it was just there you know what I mean and it was like I don't know is this ever going to go away like I, I don't know you know and and yeah and I mean like also we're not like prototypical you know handsome boy band guys so like you were like weird looking <laughs> you know like it's just weird you know like the whole thing was the whole thing is weird. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So was it? So so there was no kind of. I mean, obviously there may be a few signs, but like it was pretty much overnight. Then that it just suddenly exploded. Yeah. I mean, it was getting bigger, and it was like, wow, there's a lot of people at the shows. Like the fire marshal kept having to show up and like shut down the shows, and there's too many people on stage, and like it was like, oh god, this is getting like like how much more can this get before it like burst into like something else? And when it burst into something else, that's when it crossed into the mainstream to me. And that's when it was like a whole other level. And those are like the periods of my life that I don't even really remember. Because it was just like, get on a plane, you're going to Japan, blah, blah, blah. You know, like it was just like, I've compressed too much into, you know, like there's just too many things happened in too little amount of time. You know what I mean? So it's just like compressed. Amazing. Because yeah, of course, like everything going so crazy, that kind of that period that you're talking about kind of led into infinity on high to the point where like Jay-Z opens the album. Like how how crazy was that? By that point, did it feel like things had just completely changed for you guys? I mean, it still felt like it could go back. You know what I mean? It still felt like with with infinity on high, it felt like and we'd like to also see friends fans who'd had like one big song or one big record. And then it, like and recreate that and so the first thing that it felt like with infinity on high was you can't make the same record because if you make the same record and it fails you're doomed to this forever if you make the same record and it succeeds you're doomed to this forever um but like yeah it felt like we could still turn the clock back you know what i mean it still felt like i could go home and live at my parents house if it all you know like if if that record wasn't wasn't great it was also like such a like, um, you know, it was such an explanatory record because we're just like kids from the Midwest. So we weren't like part of a, you know, like someone's family or like anointed or whatever. So like this record felt like it was like, we're trying to explain our perspective and how we got here. And it's so odd. And we think we know it's as odd as everybody would think it was, you know, like, but like, God bless, like it got, it ended up being like, um, thing that that anybody can relate to the record because it's so weird and yeah we had like jay-z open the record i remember we <clears throat> he was the president of our label him and beyonce used to come out to our like our shows which was insane Amazing. on a whole other level and 
you know, crazy. And, you know, like, there's Beyonce dancing to Where's Your Boy Tonight at Irving Plaza. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, this is actually insane. Um, and uh, so we were like, well, can Jay-Z, you know, like, open the record? And they were like, yeah, he's into doing it. So, um, and he'd given us, like, Rockefeller pieces and, like, all this crazy, you know, stuff. And so one day they were like, okay, Jay-Z's in Australia. He wants you to call him. You're going to call his assistant or something. You're going to call this person, and they're going to, like, talk to Jay-Z, and he wants to know what you want him to say. And we were kind of like, well, he should say whatever, because, like, whatever he's going to say is infinitely cooler than what we were going to suggest. <laughs> and so we, we – me and Patrick had a big debate, and the big debate was, like, what do you ask – how do you ask for Jay-Z on the phone? You know what I mean? Like, is it, like, Mr. Carter? Like, how do you ask – and so we were debating that, and we called the number, and he answers, what up, it's Hove. And we were like, oh, my God, he answered. Like, we didn't even have to ask. He answered, like, and it threw the whole thing off that he answered the phone, you know? And then um, he gave us a whole, there's a whole, and I think Neil Avron, the producer of the record, has it. There's a whole outtake. There's a whole take of Jay-Z just ad-libbing. There's, like, a, a, an entire version of Thriller where he ad-libs over the whole song. Um, which I wish I had, I don't have, but, um, yeah, I mean, and, and this is in the same period where like, we were like, like, you know, like, you know, it's like when you have like a, a, a kid, like it's not kids and they're like, sometimes when I give them something, they just see how far they can push it. You know what I mean? Like, so like we were at the see how far we can push it level here because like, they were like, you know, like we've been on, you know, TRL and like this and that, you know, like in, in magazines and that stuff. And so like, we were like, all right. We want to play three shows in a day, you know, in three different cities in the U.S. Like, let's make that happen. Because we were like, let's just see how, like, what, what can we ask for? What can we say we want to do that, like, where they'll finally be like, no, you can't do that. And, like, they did, they, they did it. Like, we, you know, we, and we were so psyched because we were like, we're getting on this, like, sick private jet. And, like, we're going to do it. And it was like this, like, business plane in the 1970s, like, all old wood, like, it was so great. It was like so perfect because it was like it ran, it ran perfectly um, perpendicular with like a Fallout Boy. You know what I mean? It was like it was a, it was like not the jet you wanted to be on. That is absolutely insane. I mean, so was this the tipping point then? This is because obviously you said if before you made Infinity, it could have gone back to the point where you moved back to your parents' house. After this and all this craziness, was this the tipping point? Was this where it was like it can't go back after this? Um. This was the point where, um, where, uh, uh, this was the point where we realized, like, this is the point where as a band, we had to make the decision because we had like, um, you know, we'd written this song arms race and arms race is really weird because it was our, our attempt to write a Justin Timberlake song, which makes no sense because that's just how the song came out. But, um, this was the point where like our, you know, there were people in our lives that were like, if you make this song, this is the end of your career at radio. And it was the point where we had to like double down on being fallout boy, you know, and that was scary to do as like 24 year olds. Cause it was like, this could all end. Um, but I think that when we put out from under the cork tree, like we still couldn't, you know, like when we, we were still somebody's plus eight when we went out, like it wasn't like, you know, like we weren't, you know, being invited places or whatever. And infinity on high was like, the first time I think we were kind of like invited inside places. And that was a bad decision by somebody to invite us to in on the inside of any of it, because it was just all chaos. You know what I mean? Like we didn't know how to behave. <laughs>
<laughs> Amazing. Yeah, because did that bring you kind know, of a, yeah, what you've said? Like, did that kind of bring its, its own dude, difficulty? I remember, oh, oh, yeah. I remember. So we, the label took us out, and the label didn't really know what to do with us because we weren't, you know, like, we weren't straight pop, and we weren't, like, they just didn't know, like, they were like, how do we entertain them? You know what I mean? And so they, I remember them taking us out. We were at the, um, we were at the MT, the VMA Awards in, in Florida, or wherever they were. I can't remember where they were. And, um, and they took us out to dinner, and uh, Joe ordered Louis the Fourteenth, whatever that cognac is. You know, it's like super expensive, right? You know, or whatever. Like we did, he just, I think he looked at what was the most expensive alcohol and just ordered it. And they brought it out, and he takes it like a shot. He just shoots it. And I look look over at the label, and they're like, "Whoa, what the fuck are these guys?" You know, like they're like, "We, we don't." <laughs> and that was like kind of the whole thing, you know? Like it was like I remember we saw like. Hulk Hogan when we were out, we were like, put us in a headlock, and he was, and like, everyone was like, this is not how you behave when you get to where you're at, you know, but we didn't know, because there was like, nobody told us. Yeah, definitely, because then, because then that kind of, that whole period kind of ended in Folly Adu, uh, which I guess was your first kind of properly polarizing album, like it's a great album, but it kind of, but it was, it kind of split people into two camps. Was that a result of all that craziness? I think so. I think it was a result of a couple things. I think that we, we, there was a part of us that thought we had a Midas touch, you know, like that everything we touched would just work because everything had worked up until then. So, and I remember like the first time, oh, maybe it's not like that, but my first moment was that was we were at the Grammys, we were up for Best New Artist, and we'd won every award up until then, and they go, and the award for Best New Artist goes to and I just see the guy say John Legend, and I'm like, well, he didn't say Fall Out, you know, like, it was like, I just didn't even understand it, like, we didn't even understand it, and that was, it was good, it was humbling, in the way that it was like, okay, like, you're gonna have to fight tooth and nail for everything, and you're still not gonna always, it's not gonna always go the way you want it to go, because it's just not how the world works, and Foley I Do was, um, we put that record out at an odd time, you know, like, Pop music switched completely to four on the floor dance. It was only Lady Gaga, you know what I mean? And uh, we put out this song, I Don't Care, which we thought kind of could have like followed Britney Spears' Womanizer on the radio, but it just didn't work for anybody, you know? And um, that was rough. And then our, our, our label pushed the record back um, three months or something like that, you know, just to see if it would work at radio. And that basically killed the record globally. You know what I mean? Like when you, your label pushes a record back and you're going into those markets, it basically just puts a bullet in the record. Um, yeah. And so we were going into it. And I think that part of us, like also like, you know, like it, it had been so high for so long. That part of us like wanted to like, like mess up. You know what I mean? Part of us like wanted to, you know, and I, you know, like just in the way where you're like self-sabotaging and, you know, and we made a weird record, you know, um, it was interesting because we were like a little bit, you know, like we, we weren't, we weren't all talking super well at the time and stuff. It was the record that was going to be made. You know what I mean? It was just like, that's where we were at. You know, I was, I think, um, going to be a dad. And like the precipice of that was like pretty scary to me and, you know, exciting, but like, I just didn't know where, what it was going to be. And so, yeah, that was like, that was like, we were going to make Foley I Do. Like, there was no way, you know, the thing in the movie, the time or the book, the time machine, but I refer to the movie where he like saves his 
girlfriend or fiance, but then like she keeps dying other ways. Like we were gonna make Folia do. Like if you had put us in with like a different producer, if you, like it was just gonna be made. Yeah, for sure. Because then after that period, you know, you guys went away for a bit, and then you recorded Save Rock and Roll in secret, and then you it was amazing when you came back and you were like, we're back, and we've got a full album recorded. Huge sonic reinvention, which has paid off. Um, how was that period? Was it was it palpable? Could you feel how much people wanted you to come back, and could you see this influence that the band had had on so many people? No, not at all. It felt like I'm like got a Larry David thing where I like, you know, like, you know, like I heard a story where he has like, you know, he goes to, you know, Dodger stadium and there's like, um, you know, 30,000 people screaming for Larry David. And then he was walking to his car or whatever afterwards. And some guy's like, Larry David, you suck. And that's like the only guy he can think about. And like, that's definitely, uh, I definitely have that, um, as well. And like, beyond that, I'm like, I don't know, you know, like there wasn't a real like archetype for like relaunching a band, you know, like, especially, I mean, like maybe Aerosmith, I'm like trying to think of another band that like, but they didn't really go away. I mean, they, they, they reinvented themselves, but like, there was just not a good, it wasn't a proper thing to look to. So it was kind of like, okay, we're going to relaunch this thing in a time when music is like so different than it was. And I don't mean like, just like sonically, like it was like how people listen to music and like where people go to listen to music um hip hop was bigger than it had ever been um yeah it was it was it was odd it nothing about it felt like a sure thing and honestly making a new song and new album that was so sonically different felt like yeah the payoff could be enormous but like if it's wrong it's probably legacy destroying you know what i mean like it's like probably like this is what like you were killing the first half of your career, you know? I remember like yeah. I remember being in a hotel room with Patrick in Chicago the night before the record came out, or the night before Light 'em Up came out, my songs came out, and I was like, it's fine if we don't put the song out. Like, if we don't put the song out, we're fine. Like, our, like, it, Fall Out Boy, what it was is intact, and like, I'm gonna be fine, and it's okay. And that was like just an insane thing to think. But I remember it was just too scary. Yeah, man, for sure. So even though that was the thought process at the time and it was so kind of nerve wracking, did it, is that what you needed? Like, did that save the band essentially? Because it ended up paying off so well and you ended up kind of, you know, becoming absolute legends upon your return. Did it kind of like heal relationships? Did it heal the band? Was it a really, really positive era looking back? I mean, without a doubt, uh, Patrick and I, and probably the four of us, uh, are better for knowing each other and making music together, you know? And I know that Patrick was at a really low point at the time. I had been at a low point, I think, like, years earlier, like, when we first kind of, like, took the break. And, like, so it was really, really healing, you know? Um, I think it also, like, you know, Fall Out Boy has always kind of been, you know, like, we're one of those, we were one of those bands that like the kids loved us a lot of times, like the, the, um, like, uh, the girls and women loved us. And I don't mean they loved us. Like they were like, Oh my God, these guys are so hot. Like they, our fan base was just vocally, um, was, was female and young. And honestly, I think that like, we, that, you know, like that's what launches bands like Led Zeppelin and, and Guns N' Roses and the Beatles and, 
uh, One Direction, all these bands. But I think that like people don't always like 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 because people are just like dismissive of it because it's like they're like that's just little girls or what you know and, like people are so dismissive of it. And I think that coming back and and seeing a lot of those people and now that they were in their twenties and later twenties and like being able to be like. I like this band that like is now not distinct. Like, I don't know that we were credible, but like we weren't so distinctly non-credible. So like, it made me feel good for those fans because like, I was like, these people stuck around. These are the people that like launched us. You know what I mean? And so like, I felt, uh, I felt good for them that like, it wasn't like a fluke. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> No, for sure, man. Like, yeah, so it's going into American Beauty, American Psycho after that as well, and now into Mania as well. It feels like you're doing so much with the Fallout Boy sound now. You know, we, we've spoken before about how eclectic you are and how every song, you know, we don't know what's coming next and things like that. Does it feel now that there is no rule book when it comes to, I mean, was there ever a rule book? I mean, people always told us there was a rule book, but it's just, <laughs> I don't know. It's just never been that interesting to have the rule book, you know? And people, like, and, you know, that's what I loved about the clash and I loved about Bowie and you know, like they just like they destroy the rule book and create a new rule book. And then people are like, well, you're breaking that rule, you know, like, and, and, and that's what I, I, I love. And I think that like, especially in popular music, like you need to do that, you know, like you need to like, I don't know. I think that, that, that that's what drives culture forward. And, and, um, I mean, American beauty made that record basically back to back with, rock and roll and so like that was just an experiment like can we do this and like survive as human beings and then uh maybe process you know like where we started making a record and uh and with really the intention that we can kind of make anything but then like are we making something that matters to anybody you know what i mean like and we and i think we realized that we weren't and like while it was like scary and you know probably frustrating for people for us to announce like that we were pushing it back and stuff like, or like it was, you know, like for us, it was scary. Like that was, that felt very similar to the feeling of like, before we put out my songs, but like, it just was the right decision. Cause it's like, if you're not doing something that you think is important, like what's, what's, what's the point? You know what I mean? Like, I think that the way the internet and music and entertainment is now that like the stuff in the middle is like less important than it ever was. Like people talk about the, the stuff, you know, like stuff's really loud when it's really bad and stuff's really loud when it's really good and, and, and polarizing and stuff. But like the stuff in the middle just doesn't, the mediocre stuff is, is there's no room for it. Yeah, for sure, man. I totally agree. And, and, and like going forward into the future as well, you know, with Mania coming out next year. I mean, how do you feel about obviously now bands who've been influenced by you have come up themselves? Do you think, how do you feel about bands like that who are so influenced by you influencing younger bands themselves? Is that a very proud thing? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy if that's the case. You know, like, I, I've had a couple times, like, people be like, oh, like, I play drums because of, like, Andy Hurley or something, and, like, that, like, feels so great. You know, like, it feels so great in the way that, like, I was reading that, like, um, and this is the cheesiest or whatever, but if you look at the book, it's kind of good. Uh, the Little Engine That Could book to my three-year-old the other day, and, like, the most important part of that story is not, like, the huff and puff and I'll make it up the hill. Like, that's only in it for, like, a second the most the most important part of the story to me was like this like little engine shows up and like everyone's like oh this little 
shitty thing. Like, this can't pull you up the hill. Like, this thing sucks. Like, it's just like, it's never gone up the hill, you know, whatever. And that's what I like about, that's what means the most about follow-up. Like, we were never supposed to be here. You know, like, we're not, like, this is, any of this story is, is a is a legend because we're just like this, like, shitty punk band from the suburbs of Chicago. You know what I mean? Like, we're not not supposed to be like this. <laughs> yeah man I mean it's absolutely crazy to you say that just to finish up then uh, I'm going to speak to Patrick in a few hours about the same things and um, yeah. you guys are obviously you know you got, there's always been a real spark to your relationship and you guys as best friends is it is it very is it very yeah. proud for you guys that you guys have done all this together yeah man I mean like when I look over and I see Patrick um, as who Patrick is now you know and he's a dad and he's um gets on stage in front of like, you know, like 30,000 people or whatever. Like it makes me feel great. Cause like I knew that kid when he like wore Argyle socks and shorts and like answered the door and thought he was going to play drums and fall out boy, you know? So like it just, yeah, it makes me feel really great. And it also feels, you know, like, well, it's probably, I'm sure it's great to be like Drake or whatever, like, or whoever, like solo artists. Like I'm, I know it's great to be Drake, but like any solo artist, it feels so good to like have like a, uh, comrades you know because it's like so much of it's like so strange you know like where you're like i don't know why i'm doing this like german interview or i don't know what you know like and, and to have like you know a couple of other people there that like that get it and think it's just as strange as you like it means a lot so that was pete man that beyonce story yeah i <laughs> I still cannot get over that. I've just had this image of Jay-Z and Beyonce dancing to Where Is Your Boy since I did that interview. Absolutely insane. But anyway, I'm going to shut up. Here's Mr. Patrick Stump, the legend that is. So I spoke to Pete uh, a few hours ago. So now let's present to you the uh, Roxanne Hall of Fame Award. How does it feel to have won? <laughs> Wild. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> amazing so what, what i want to do is i just want to kind of uh talk a bit of a retrospective of the band's career and just kind of uh how it's led up to the modern day really so uh we'll start right at the beginning you're one of the most influential bands in music hands down inspired a whole generation of bands could you even fathom that when you went in to record takes to your grave because uh, pete was saying you absolutely couldn't and it's a crazy thing well the funny thing is we barely even went in to record take this to your grave i mean the whole thing landed so so perfectly, you know, like in, in terms of the way that it was received, there's no way to even have, we barely had time to even appreciate that the record was done, <laughs> you know, like, let alone that, let alone that anyone was going to care about, it. um, you know, we, um, when we did, so that record started out literally as a demo, um, uh, dead on arrival Saturday and, um, I want to say um, Homesick at Space Camp were all part of a, a three-song demo. Um, those recordings, too. It wasn't like we re-recorded them. We didn't have money. <laughs> so so we, what, you hear, what you hear was our original, original demo. And then, um, you know, a, like six months later, uh, we scrounged up some more money to do uh, Where Is Your Boy and Grenade Jumper, I think. And so it wasn't until by the time we actually went in to record an album, we already had half of it done, you know, um, and, uh, and it was really just, you know, let's just finish a record. It wasn't even, and you know, Andy wasn't even in the band officially, you know, I wasn't even the guitar player officially at the time, you know, it was just kind of like we had, you know, like I said, we were barely even accepting that the record was completed, you know, let alone that this was going to be anything that anyone remembered, you know, <laughs> so 
Amazing. Yeah, because um, cause I spoke to Pete about how, uh, you know, you guys had a very unique sound from the very beginning. I mean, you know, your melodies were very inspired by Motown and obviously Pete had his whole like, hardcore vibe into the band. There was so much that all four of you were so eclectic in what you brought to a very unique sound. Um, but Pete was saying that there was kind of nothing premeditated about that. Like it just kind of happened. Is, is that very much how it is from your angle as well? Oh, definitely. Because, I mean, we were trying to be um you know more of something else i mean we were we were aiming for for something um all the bands in chicago at the time that you know that we could have played with um almost all the bands were either um you know really serious uh um midwestern emo stuff which we were definitely not and we were not accepted in that universe at all it was um you know, fat records, pop punk stuff, um, or it was hardcore bands, you know? Um, and we, we didn't really fit into any of those things. And, um, we all kind of tried in different ways, you know, but the the truth is that, you know, I was never going to be, um, you know, uh, I would, you know, I was kind of a, I was, I was very involved in hardcore, but I was always kind of a, a, silly fit for, for the hardcore scene. <laughs> I'll totally admit that, you know? Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, so as much as I wanted to mosh, I think I couldn't help but be more melodic. That was just more natural to me. And, um, as much as, you know, we, as much as we wanted to zero in on any one sound, we couldn't because all four of us just had came from different places musically and kind of landed in this thing. So yeah, it's really funny. We couldn't have premeditated that if we tried because we were, we were trying to sound like, you know, newfound or whatever, you know, (laughs) and and we didn't, you know? (laughs) So, um, so it it was, uh, and save the day, you know, save the day was a big influence on us. And it's funny when I listen to take this to your grave, because there are moments that sound like save the day to me, but overall it really, we couldn't, we couldn't not sound like ourselves. <laughs> we, just, we just couldn't. You know. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah, because um, going into Courtry off the back of that, I mean, obviously it was a very, uh, it was a huge success in the underground. Um, and I, I asked Peter earlier if there was a lot of pressure going into Courtry, but he was saying that it was actually a period that kind of had its difficulties and that going into Courtry, um, it just, it, it wasn't really, there wasn't really kind of any, any pressure on it really. You just kind of went in and did it. Is that very much what happened? Sort of. Um, I mean, I think I felt a little bit of different pressure than he did because, um, because we had kind of, um, established our, our writing thing. I think I had a different fire than he did because he had a, he was in this zone where he was just writing and everything he was writing was fantastic. I mean, I still, you know, on an, on occasion, I will still pull up some of his unused lyrics for, from Corktree and find, you know, a couplet here that ends up making on the record. He was just so prolific and so good that it really was low pressure for him because everything he was writing was like some of the, you know, some really inspired stuff. For me, I was kind of tackling this challenge of, so so I knew that I wasn't going to be, I knew that I never felt like I fit into any of the scenes. I didn't really fit into the emo thing. I didn't really fit into the pop punk thing. I didn't really fit into the hardcore thing. So I was like, if I'm ever going to be myself as a musician, I have to start now. Because like, Take This to Your Grave was a happy accident. And there are moments on that record that really shine to me. Um, you know, and whatever, that's a great, great album. I, I love that album. I'm not saying it's not, you know, I'm not really proud of it. I'm very, very proud of that record. But, um, 
I think I was kind of scared of being myself on that record. And Corktree, I was like, well, you know, my dad never got signed. My dad was a musician. You know, My dad never got signed, certainly not to a major label. So I'm only going to get one shot at this. So if I, if I ever want to do anything in music, I want to lay the blueprint for it now. And so I set out to make that record really eclectic and really, um, and really kind of stretch the boundaries of what we were allowed to do. Because like, you know, it's funny now because now I say dance, dance, and that sounds like a pop punk song. But at the time that song sounded so crazy to people, you know, like when, when we play it for our friends and other bands, they'd be like, what is this? This is wild. It's like, it's like Motown or something, you know, and it's not, you know, <laughs> like it obviously doesn't sound like that, but at the time it sounded so radically different than, than the other stuff. And that was kind of a conscious thing was I was like, if we just go in and do the, the pop version of, of take this to your grave, I don't think I can, I'm going to be able to sleep at night. I need to do, I need to, and, and the band, I think, you know, I, I keep talking in first person, but the band was all kind of united on that, that like, we're only going to get to do this once. Let's do it you know, as weird as we can, <laughs> as us as we can. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That, so in terms of like, of course, Sugar We Going Down, um, you know, one of the biggest songs mm-hmm. of this century, so loved. Um, was there, I mean, I, I, I think I read a really cool story that you, you finished the vocals and you came out and said as a joke that you'd put um, Andy's kids through college or something. Um, is that kind of, was there, oh, yeah. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't remember if Andy said it or if I said it, but it was totally tongue-in-cheek because, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. you also have to con- contextualize that we had made no money at this point at all. There was no money. There was no money anywhere, and there was no. we didn't know anyone that made money as a musician. So, so it was definitely a, a joke, and um, it probably came true, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, it was, I mean, that song, that song changed my life, you know. I mean, I'm... I'm uh, you know, I, I have a music career, I, I think in, in a large part due to that song. Um, and, uh, and so whatever, but it was not, yeah, that was totally, um, a joke. I, I didn't have any, I knew that there would be, I knew that some of our fans would like that song, um, because we had a small following from take this to your grave, you know? Yeah. Um, I didn't know that, that, everyone was going to like that song. <laughs> you know, not that everyone did, but that it was, that it was a, I didn't know that that'd be a song I'd still be singing, you know, um, uh, um, you know, over a decade later, you know, um, it, it just didn't, it just felt like a, a really strong song. It didn't feel like a, you know, um, uh, you know, you, you don't know, you never know when you make a hit. I, I, I read these, I read these guys all the time talking about, Oh, you know, you can totally tell. And it's like, I've, Maybe they know something I don't because I never do. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. Because because uh, people are saying when you've done the album as well with the because um, obviously it was it was soon to be massive, like things were going to go crazy. But he was saying that it was very much the kind of the fan push, especially with MTV and what was going on in the music industry at that point. The fans really, really pushed the video for Sugar and the album, uh, and that kind of led to the the kind of explosion overnight. Is is that kind of is that is that what happened? Because then it just everything went crazy when you guys were on Warped. Like how ha- take us inside that a bit. How was it? Oh yeah, no, it was crazy. It, the whole thing was crazy because we would go on, we would book tours. Um, you know, Warped as an example, we would book tours, and when we, you know, you're talking a matter of months, you know, maybe one or two months, we would book shows 
um, expecting a certain turnout and expecting to be, you know, when, booking agents take this stuff into account when they book a band. They go, okay, well, this is a band that's going to draw, you know, a couple hundred people. Okay, we'll put them on this stage at this time, whatever, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, so we were booked on all these tours as a much smaller band. And every time, by the time we would get to that show, it would be so much bigger, almost dangerously bigger. You know, I mean, you're talking still very small venues, but, you know, you know, um, you, you would, they would anticipate, you know, 400 people and a thousand would show up. They'd anticipate a thousand people and 5,000 would show up. It was, it was, a, you know, it, it became this weird thing that we couldn't, you know, catch up to. We, there was a, there were, we started a riot at um, the Wheaton Community Center, <laughs> a light riot, um, but, 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 but something of a riot because we weren't the headliner. We weren't, weren't supposed to be the headliner. Um, and, um, and, uh, somehow we ended up headlining that show. Um, and it was really late in the night and, you know, they had to pull the plug on us. And I guess there were enough people that were angry about that, which was crazy to us, you know, at the time, like who would want to see, you know, like we like, we liked being fallout boy, but we didn't imagine that there would be anyone that really wanted to see us. <laughs> you know, So, so, um, so it was, you know, it was just this whole, the whole thing caught you off guard. I mean, not to mention that I was going through sort of my most awkward phase as a person, you know, so to be on, you know, on MTV and, and, you know, we were on like, they were putting our, our pictures in like the boy band magazines and stuff like that. And I'm like, really? Like it, it was so surreal because like it became this big thing and it was sort of overnight, but it was also like, we were also deep in touring, you know, so, um, we didn't really get to see it and experience it. You know, people would see us on TV, but we didn't, we weren't able to watch TV, you know, um, or people would see us in magazines, but we didn't, we weren't able to see the magazines, you know? So it was this thing that you would, it was like coming out of a, of a, you know, like a, I, I don't know, coming out of a coma or something and being like, what did I miss? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so, yeah, it was very weird. <laughs> Amazing, yeah, because then with all that stuff going on, it just continued to get crazier and crazier. We get to Infinity on High to the point where uh, Jay-Z's introducing the album. I mean, Pete told me an insane story earlier about Beyonce coming to one of your shows and like dancing to Where Is Your Boy and stuff like that. Like just crazy, crazy stuff. Um, how was that? Like, was it, were you just completely caught in the eye of the storm or was it overwhelming or like, how did it feel? Oh yeah. It, it's just surreal. I know I've said that, um, but that's really the operative word. It was so surreal because it never really felt like a thing. You know, why would Jay Z be, um, at a fall play show? You know, it just didn't add up. Um, you know, Jay Z doesn't go to fall play shows. He goes to, you know, real bands shows, <laughs> you know, is kind of what it felt like, which is crazy. It's funny because I get now, um, you know, the band has been, successful now for for you know a number of years i think it would be it would be ridiculous for me to to feign um surprise now when someone says they they know my band or like my band um because you know i i guess i'm i guess it's happened enough but it's still weird it still doesn't feel you know like it still doesn't feel like a thing that I expect to be a reality, you know, you never expect it. Yeah, for sure. Cause, cause as well, by the point of the end of that cycle, we get to folly our do and it's your first, uh, I guess, 
polarizing album and I, I think it's a great record but it kind of it was the first time that it kind of split people into two camps uh, and Pete was saying because of yeah. all the craziness and that and the kind of uh, end re- being the end result of that era it was it was always going to be the album you were going to make like how was it going into that album uh, that album was really tough because um, I think we we were not a united front on on what we wanted to do um, on that record and, and so what that meant was that I had kind of said to everybody, I was like, you know, we worked really, really, really hard. We've worked so hard for years at this point. We've been, you know, um, touring straight. You know, I think there was one two-year period where I think we toured, what was it, like 600 days or something crazy. You know, I don't, maybe, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it was a lot. I mean, it was, it was you know, we were touring constantly. Um, and we were working really hard and we're doing all this promo for radio. And, um, and it, it got really disconnecting. You, you kind of lost touch with, um, each other, with your family, with music, you know, with making music because you're just on the road. You're just kind of a, you're just kind of a machine, you know, you're not really you kind of lose sight of that creative muscles, you know, those creative muscles. And so I, I said at the beginning of that cycle, at the beginning of Fully I Do, I was like, what if we take a, take this really light? And because and, we got lucky, there's no way you're going to get lucky again. You know, that's not how fate works. We're not going to have another smash record off of basically three bigger and bigger records, you know? Because Take This Your Grave was wildly successful for our standards at the time. Then Corktree was even more successful. Um, and then by certain measures, Infinity was even more successful. So, um, you know, what are the odds that that's going to happen again? And I was like, let's not think about success. Let's just write a record that we want to write. And I think, um, I think Pete very much agreed with that. But the thing that I underestimated is that Pete naturally has city towards these big sounding songs, you know, um, and so it was kind of this battle, this interplay between the two of us where I was trying to do this subtle, weird thing, and he was pushing for these bigger, louder things. Um, and so we kind of ended up in the middle there. And uh, I think that was one of the reasons why it was such a polarizing record, because we were polarized, you know. Um, and I don't regret it, uh, but it's, a, it's just a thing that, you know, um, I think you can hear it on the record, but I think a lot of the best, the best stuff we've ever done is, uh, contentious, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like, does that go for some of the earlier records as well? I mean, there's, I guess there's always been that sort of cre- amazing kind of creative axis between you and Pete, like you're saying, I mean, has that kind of, has that been across all fallout boy records? Yes, definitely. I think that the, there's never been a, a song that's made it to the record that didn't have at least a good argument about it. You know, uh, Pete and I have this, have this way of, of fighting through our things and it makes the record better because of it. I think, you know, I, I think that's, you know, if anything, that's one of the reasons why we delayed this record because we didn't fight enough. <laughs> I feel like, you know, if, if you, you, could, you could tell there just wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of back and forth and, and it, you, it, it affects the output when when everybody's kind of going, yeah, this is great, you know, for for us anyway. I mean, I'm sure there are some bands that are that totally, you know, don't ever argue. We're not that band, you know. Um, so. 
<laughs> Amazing. Yeah, because I guess as well at the end of Folly uh, and with that kind of that axis between the, the two of you kind of going very extreme, did that lead into you guys taking some time away? Because obviously like you guys took a bit of time away and then within that time um, stuff again just started to get even crazier and there was there was that kind of demand of you guys because you guys were seen as such legends by then um, Pete was saying that it was yeah. it, it was like it was almost like though you guys didn't really see that it was just kind of like you guys kind of just kind of completely took a time out like how was that period for you well it was weird because um, one of the things is that you're in a bubble you know when you're in a band especially you're in a bus you're on a tour you're surrounded by people that work for you you're surrounded by people that work with you you don't you're not in reality so you don't always understand what reality is you have a very skewed reality and so it means that when things are going good it feels even better because everybody's acting like it's the best thing ever you know when things are going bad everyone's acting like it's the worst thing that's ever happened ever so Legitimately, I went into the break thinking that Fall Out Boy had, was totally done and that no one liked us and that we were, you know, worthless. It was basically where I, you know, not, not as, as, as people or anything, but I thought that was where public perception was of Fall Out Boy. Um, and so when I went in to do my solo thing, I thought I was nobody. And I mean, I, I, still, feel, I still feel like nobody, but I'm saying I didn't think my name carried with it any sort of weight. I didn't feel any responsibility to... Fall Out Boy fans, because I didn't think there were any any anymore. You know, I thought Fall Out Boy was just kind of this has-been thing, you know. Um, and uh, so I went into my solo thing thinking that I could do whatever because no one was going to call me on it. No one knew who I was. And I was so wrong because, sure enough, I get to venues and, um, you know, the audience is asking for Fall Out Boy songs. Or um, I get to venues and the booking agent had been expecting you know, this many people to show up because they thought I was Fall Out Boy, you know, like, whatever. And, um, and it was just such a weird thing that I, I, I really, um, I wish that it had been, I, I, I really, I really was oblivious. I really was totally oblivious that anyone wanted us anymore. I mean, the, the other thing that you have to, you know, I have to remember to contextualize it is, we had done uh, the Blink reunion tour. That was our last tour, was Blink's reunion tour. And, um, you know, we were main support. We had picked up a bunch of dates that were supposed to be Weezer dates. So people had bought tickets thinking they were going to see Blink-182 and Weezer. Um, I understand this now, but at the time, I kind of didn't put two and two together. Um, so we would be playing these shows, and, you know people in the front row were probably there to have seen Weezer. I don't even know if they found out, you know, until they got there that they weren't going to see Weezer that day. Um, and so then they get Fall Out Boy instead. And there were lots of boos and heckles and, you know, you would uh, say, you know, oh, we're going to play a new song and people would be like, boo, you know, whatever. And I took that so personally and so hard, you know, I was like, oh, well, everyone just hates us now, <laughs> you know? And, um, and uh, which is obviously not true. It just, it was just not, we were on, you know, that's a tough spot to play. You know, when someone goes to see their favorite band and they get a different band, that's going to be a tough spot, you know? <laughs> um, and um, anyway, it was, uh, so yeah, I think going into that break, I had no hint of a clue that, you know, people missed us, you know, that people remembered us. 
Wow. So when, because you recorded Save Rock and Roll in secret, and then I remember, I mean, I can remember literally the night it happened. I remember uh-huh. you guys coming back, you know, you said you're back, you've got this full album recorded, you drop Light em Up, like it was crazy. Um, how was that process? Like, how was it when you regrouped as friends and as a band and put all these tracks down? Because it was a huge sonic reinvention before that boy as well. Uh, and people were saying he, yeah. remember, he remembered being on a balcony with you and saying, you know, we don't have to do this, we don't have to drop this song. And there was a, there was a real sort of nerves there. But it must have been an amazing feeling to be back, you know, with the guys making this music and, you know, people wanted it so much. Well, the thing that was really funny was we didn't know anyone wanted it still. I mean, uh, I think Pete had some feeling. He had a certain, again, Pete, you know, Pete had a certain fire to him where he was like, now's the time we got to do this. Um, and I think he had some inclination that people wanted to hear us. Um, I certainly didn't. All I, all I was thinking was the four of us like each other again, and we like playing together, playing together again. And I think when we left on Foley, what, we kind of left with our tail between our legs, you know? Like I said, I kind of took it so hard and so personally um, that I definitely, you know, crawled away whimpering at, as an artist, you know? And I think that really disappointed me in myself that, you know, that I did that. And I was like, okay, all I want to do, my only goal with this record is to tie up Fall Out Boy the right way. So if, you know, if we, if this is it, if we break up or if no one ever cares and, you know, whatever, I want to go out on a record that I, that we all think is great and that we all liked playing together. Uh, Cause that's the thing is that Foley, like I said, you know, there was this kind of contentious back and forth. Um, it was a very difficult record to make. And uh, I wanted to make something that we all liked and we all felt and we all, you know, enjoyed was, was really my, my goal with that. And um, so, you know, Pete had this fear because he was like, you know, I want people to love this. And my thing was, I'll, I'll, I was, it was already a success to me because all I wanted was to make something and not hate each other. <laughs> So by the time we finished making the record, it was already a success to me, you know, in that, in that regard. So when you did drop the songs and the reaction was as big as it was, was that a really amazing feeling, the fact that you didn't really have any expectation as it was? Yeah, well, you know, again, contextually, we're, you know, we, we're a band that kind of straddles um, a generation, sort of, because we are young enough that we're, you know, millennials and that we're, um, you know, that we had social media and stuff, but we're old enough that it wasn't there when we started, you know? Um, so we were, that was our first experience with, you know, we posted a song that morning and we played a show that night and everyone knew the words, right? That was crazy. That, that I'll never, you'll never get that again. That, that experience of, of playing a song, you know, you're still fumbling through it. You know, we don't really fully, you know, we practiced it like twice, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, and, and you're still kind of trying to memorize the words and the audience knows the words better than you do. That was crazy. You know, that was, that was, um, unreal, you know? And we're at home, we're playing Chicago for the first time in, you know, three years or something. And, you know, you, and it, there was this feeling for all four of us that like, you know, 
because I think none of us really knew what the plan was. We didn't know if we were going to continue being a band or if this was a really great send off. We just knew that we liked playing with each other and that we liked the songs and whatever. So to play that song, it would light them up. We played light them up for, for, you know, for a new audience and to have people react the way they did just, yeah. I mean, you can't, nothing like it, you know? Wow. It's a very final thing then, Patrick, before you go. I asked Pete, what's it like now that bands that have uh, that you've influenced, it's like they're influenced bands coming up now. Is that a crazy feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's weird. Um, again, I think a thing that's really strange for me personally is that I'm kind of this funny age where um, I'm... I'm older than a lot of the a lot of the bands, you know, a lot of the guys in, in a lot of the new bands, but not by a lot, you know, not certainly not by 15 years or whatever, however long Fall Out Boy has been around. And part of it's because like we were just so young when it happened, you know, when when you know we were on TV and stuff, it was it was this really weird thing that happened so young. So now to be experiencing it is so odd. It's so tremendously odd, you know, to be um, to be like this elder statesman but be maybe you know only a year or two older than some guys <laughs> you know <laughs> it's a very weird feeling um because i also all at once i feel so old and so not old you know um and and, and then musically um i mean it's crazy i i never experienced any you know what can you compare it to it's crazy it's a crazy feeling to have people um revere your music in a way that, you know, they, that, you know, they, you, you realize, you, you really realize that you're part of a continuum that, you know, um, that, um, you know, you're kind of just watching over music for a minute, you know, you don't, you're not even in charge because that's the thing is that, you know, we have our moment, and then we're going to go away and somebody else is going to have their moment and they're going to go away and so on and so on. And so it's what you do with music that matters. You know what I mean? What you do with it while you're watching it for a minute, while people are paying attention to you, what did you do? Did you do something good? <laughs> you know? And uh, that's what it feels like. It's kind of like, I hope that, um, I hope that people like what we did, you know, when, when, when all the smoke clears and the dust settles and, you know, um, 50 years from now and no one remembers what I, you know, what I did or whatever. If, um, if the people that, re- that do, you know, if a couple people that do remember it liked it, then that's, that's, that's beyond success. So amazing. A very final quick thing as well. I said to Pete, um, after all this stuff you've been through, how's it been going through it with your best friend? And that Pete told me a very sweet thing about you, uh, going through it with you. How's it been going through it with him? Um, it's amazing because he's the funniest guy. He's, <laughs> He's all at once, you know, so driven and passionate and um, eccentric. He's a really weird guy. And, you know, and I'm, I'm maybe weirder in the obvious senses. You know, when you meet me, I'm a jittery guy. I'm a strange guy, you know, whatever. But Pete has these such weird opinions on things and such weird feelings on things. And, and it's this amazing thing that the two of us have developed this, this ability to ground each other in a way that nobody else can, you know, where, um, it's really easy for me to get caught up in my, in my artsy weirdness. It's very easy for me to do that. And it's very easy for him to get caught up in the grandeur of everything. Cause he thinks, I mean, just, he thinks that way. He thinks in these big sweeping things. And sometimes, 
you know, we just pull each other back down. Like, like, you know, I'll have this idea, you know, and I'll get really so far down my craziness, you know, that I'm all, you know, that every note is the most important note, you know? And, uh, and, you know, he can just remind me, Hey, I like it. I think the song's good. I think it's, I think it's done, you know, and I can remind him, Hey, I think, you know, I think your idea is great. I don't think it needs to be any bigger or louder or anything. You know what I mean? He, we can ground each other and remind each other, you know, uh, that we're both two idiots from the suburbs. <laughs> you know? so. so that was our debut Rock Sound Awards powered by EMP.co.uk podcast with Fallout Boy, our debut Rock Sound Award Hall of Fame winners. As I say, complete bumper episode. Pete Wentz, Patrick Stump, huge shout out to those two absolute legends. If you're a Fallout Boy fan, I'm sure you're sat there dribbling right now going, oh my God, I can't believe some of the things that they were coming out with. It's just absolutely amazing, amazing stuff. And we set to go on in the same way. So before we do anything else, awards.rocksound.tv. Don't forget, head there right now. It's live as we speak to pick up your Rock Sound Awards bundle featuring all 10 of our awards winners of course Fallout Boy and then of course no spoilers but our other winners as well all absolutely amazing stuff and check back here tomorrow to hear another feature length interview with our Rock Sound Awards winners Rock Sound Awards powered by emp.co.uk we are so so stoked about this and we hope you are too we hope you're enjoying it we'll see you tomorrow see you later guys bye